morning, everyone. Please open to John chapter 4, and we'll conclude our study of this chapter uh, today. I believe that uh, last Sunday we had gotten down to verse 36, and uh, just to refresh our memory for the sake of our study this morning, let's go back up to verse 27 and uh, read down uh, through verse 42. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what, who, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Last uh, Sunday, we had gotten down through verse uh, 35. This is the uh, interval uh, between the woman leaving to go back into the city, having left her water pot there at the well, and the uh, apostles uh, talking to Jesus about physical things such as uh, eating because he, he needed to, to eat. And so uh, we see this as an interesting thing, it's a, a metaphor in verse 36 we'll pick up. He just told them, you just need to get your eyes off of me and what you perceive to be the, the current thing that, that we are tired, we've come a long way, we need to refresh ourselves with food and with, with drink. And he tells them right now there is something great about to happen. You need to just 
get your eyes off of me in, in the present physical crisis and look what's coming our way. And out of the city comes this great number of people toward them. And I suggested last week, of course, uh, this is just kind of filling in the, the blanks, reading between the lines, but he does use the word, uh, the fields are white unto harvest. Now, they didn't grow cotton like we grow cotton around here back then. More than likely, the crop that was growing at that time, awaiting the harvest, was, was barley, uh, which would not be a white color. And I suggested, and this is not original to me, it's uh, some of the things that I've read, that perhaps because of the clothing of the people, white being the usual color, uh, anybody who had uh, dyed fabrics and everything uh, indicated that they were maybe a little bit higher up on the physical, uh, financial ladder than others. So most just wore white garments. And so he's using a metaphor here. We, we've got a harvest here right now. It's not four months away, but it's coming toward us right now. In a few minutes, they'll be here. You need to realize that and recognize the opportunity uh, that we have. So in verse 36 then, he continues and he says, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that he... Uh, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So he's extending this metaphor a little bit, uh, talking about the elements of sowing and reaping. You can't have a harvest of any kind without sowing and reaping. And so Jesus extends the metaphor to include that. And of course, here the great reward uh, is life eternal which when we receive that, uh, both the one who sowed the, the seed of the gospel and he who brought somebody to actual obedience can rejoice together because of the harvest, the final glory that we will have in heaven. So he goes on to verse 37, and he continues talking about sowing and reaping. I sent you to reap, that for which you've not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. One sows, another reaps. Uh, he's extending this to cover uh, the, uh, the, well, how do I want to put it? The, the harvest and, and the elements of sowing and reaping and entering into another's labor. I think that's important for us to think about. I want us to turn to a familiar passage that you know very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And here Paul talks about the very same thing, but he adds some details that I think it's pertinent for us to look at. 1 Corinthians 3 now I'll begin with verse 5 and go through verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. 
Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So Paul picks this up, and of course this is on the other side of the cross now. Keep in mind that this account of the Samaritan woman and Jesus' encounter with her uh, happened on the other side of the cross. There has not been the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the Great Commission. Uh, Paul is speaking, of course, on the other side of the cross. He's speaking to the Corinthians. Uh, some sowed the seed there. Others have watered it, fertilized it a little bit more. But in the end, God is the one who gave the increase. Uh, so in Paul's use of the metaphor, uh, the soul winner is the one who plants and waters. And he added that it is God who gives the increase. And we need to keep that in mind always. Uh, human pride so often gets in the way of our going about the Lord's business. It, it's human nature, I guess, uh, to varying degrees, the, the element of, of pride. But I think if anything here in what Jesus has said and then adding to what Paul has, has said about sowing and reaping and God giving the increase is exactly that. The focus is on God. God works through us. And each of us has a part to play. Uh, and so... Uh, we need to keep that in mind. It's not us. The power is in the Word. We know that very well. Romans 1.16. Uh, the power of the salvation is the gospel, the Word. And we know that the promise is there that my Word, which goes out from me, will not return unto me void. And so God takes what we do and He gives the increase. Let's keep it all in the proper perspective. But then in verse 38, uh, I think we need to notice one other thing here. You have entered into their labors. That's what we've been talking about, but let's focus on that just a little bit. Uh, very often, uh, it's not all us when we have studied with somebody and been fortunate enough to lead them to obedience. And we need to always be careful not to feel prideful of that because more than likely, uh, anyone who comes to obedience of the gospel, there have been many leading up to that point that have contributed in one way or another to his coming to obedience. It's always a blessing for the one who can see the actual harvest of a soul being saved. Uh, but very often, uh, we need to keep in mind that it wasn't because of my efforts alone. Uh, all of us, I think, can identify with that. 
I was uh, raised in a Christian home. I obeyed the gospel when I was 12 years old. Uh, Brother Kyle McWhorter baptized me over in the old building. Uh, and Kyle would be the first to say, well, this wasn't all me. It wasn't my powerful sermon that I preached that I responded to. But I've got my parents. Uh, I've got my family. Uh, I've got Bible teachers that taught me in uh, the classes as I was growing up. All of that goes together to the point when one, when the light sort of comes up and obeys the gospel. So it's important to, to remember that. Now, it is possible, I think, especially when you're studying with people in the world who have very little knowledge of religion uh, or the church or anything. A lot of times these are encountered when we go out into the community and begin knocking on doors, not knowing who's going to be on the other side. Uh, it is possible at times uh, to actually enter into a Bible study and that person become educated as to uh, their sin, as to the salvation that is in Christ through the cross, and what it takes to obey that gospel and to be baptized into Christ. And uh, that is indeed uh, a wonderful uh, feeling. But even then, when you have brought them from beginning to, to obedience, it's still God who gives the increase. Our job is simply to preach the gospel. And I think that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm thankful that God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now you and I know what he's talking about there. Uh, denominational people will jump on that, take it out of context, and say, well, there you are. Paul didn't believe that baptism was necessary for salvation. He was thankful that Christ didn't send him to baptize. But there, of course, we know that he's talking about the one who administers baptism. And uh, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his apostles did. And Paul didn't baptize all the ones that he led to obedience. Others did. So we need to understand that and uh, keep things in the right perspective and give God the ultimate glory always and to others along the way. Yes, Oh, no. Everyone in their right. life is going to teach them more about the Bible and Christ. And so it's really when it says uh, that we enter into their labor, it's, it's everybody. It's all of us. We all have to have a part in, in a new Christian, becoming a Christian. We all have to help and, and center them on the Word of God. Right? Good point. Yes, it is. Because... Uh, as she said, it, it does not end at baptism. It begins there. And there's a, a lot of babysitting needs to be done. And so often that's where we fail, isn't it? We think that, okay, we've got them into the water and on the other side of the water, so let's go on to the next one. But uh, there's been a new birth. And there's a spiritual baby that without nourishment going to die won't be with us very long much longer 
So excellent point. Thank you, Julie, for bringing that, that up. We come on in to uh, verse 39, and here uh, we see the people from the city coming out whom the Samaritan woman had gone back and reported what had happened with her encounter. Uh, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman that testified. So we've got initially here the people who the Samaritan woman had talked to when she left her water pot full of zeal and wonder and excitement, sort of being awestruck, and she goes in and she loses her shame. I'm in sin, I've been in sin, and this man told me everything I believe. Could this be the Christ? And I think she, at that point, believed, yes, he is. You need to come see for yourself. And so many did. Uh, they came out of the city, and uh, there they encountered Jesus himself. And it says that uh, many, though, believed in him initially because of the word of the woman. And so in verse 40, it talks about the Samaritans uh, when they had come to him, urged him to stay. He stayed there for two more days, and many more believed. Uh, probably pretty near, uh, what does it say here in Lawrence County, pretty near, all of the village, all of that city of Sychar probably came. And it says here, many more believed because of his own word. And then in verse 42, they said to the woman, and I think that this is uh, interesting. Remember who this woman is. She is a woman that probably had been shunned by others, by the other women. We've talked about that. A woman who had been in sin and who is in sin. And uh, now the people, after their encounter with Jesus, acknowledges this woman. What a powerful witness. Uh, this, this woman was responsible. If she had just kept this to herself, this encounter with Jesus, maybe even being brought to the point of belief, of faith, but that was it. She just silently went back into the city, hopefully doing what she knew she needed to do. But she didn't do that. Everybody knew her. But regardless, she went back in and she told the good news. And she was acknowledged for that. I think we see a, a zeal here in this woman that it would do us good to, uh, to replicate in our own lives. Where is the zeal? I remember... Uh, several years ago when uh, we were at Harding. And uh, I was enrolled in the, uh, the preacher program, the two-year non-degree program there. And it was, as you, if you would, a preacher training school on the campus of Harding College. 
And uh, the minimum age was 21 years old, so uh, we had 28 men in our class, the alpha class. And for the most part, these were uh, men who had already married, young children. I think the oldest among us was 45 years old. I was 23 at the time. And uh, the men that made up that class, a large part of them were new converts, relatively new converts themselves. And a lot of, uh, a few of them anyway, I remember, came as a result of the bus program that was in vogue at that time. They had been brought to Christ through that program, through their own children who rode the bus. But here's my point. I still remember, I, I as well as others in the class had been raised in the church. Uh, we had a lot more knowledge at that point, I think, than some of our classmates who had not been raised in, in the church. But man, you talk about zeal. And, and that just impressed me. It caused me to look at myself. These men were on fire. They couldn't wait to get out there. In fact, they didn't wait. Even during the two years that we were there, they were out doing personal work. They were sharing the gospel with people while they were learning more about God's Word. And these were new converts. We've been in the world and then we've been brought to Christ. And they had a zeal that I didn't have. And we were fresh from the mission field. We had just come back from Sierra Leone. But they beat me all over the place with their zeal. And it just caused me to wonder. I think we see that here in the Samaritan woman. Zeal is something that, that comes naturally. It's not something that, that you can uh, force. It has to be sincere. It has to be genuine. But why isn't it? If we don't have zeal, then why don't we? What's wrong? Brethren, I'm just simply suggesting that maybe in this study of the Samaritan woman that we need to look at ourselves. We have heard the good news. Many of us have been raised knowing that good news of salvation and the blessings of being in the Lord's church. We know what we did to be saved and we know what it will take to save those outside the church, those who are lost. We have that knowledge. Those people don't. Can we not somehow get excited about opportunities let me just close this without getting on the soapbox by suggesting if you're not already, and I trust that many of us already are doing this, but if not, let me challenge you to pray for opportunities. And that's scary because if we're genuine and we pray for opportunities, they're going to come. They come anyway, but even more so if we pray for opportunities to come our way to share our faith with lost. I think God's going to answer that prayer. You're going to have opportunities, and I'm going to have opportunities. So if we pray for it, we need to be looking for the answer. and They'll come. And we need to seize upon that. Uh, 
Verse 40, the Samaritan village, uh, I think, stands in stark contrast to the reception that Jesus had gotten in Jerusalem. Here the Samaritans, they too had believed in a, a somehow physical uh, savior or a restorer uh, who would come one day, the Messiah, according to the Jews. So they, they had that in their mentality. But in Jerusalem, they had that mentality, and when the Savior presented himself among them, they refused to acknowledge him or recognize him. But the Samaritans, when they were confronted with Jesus, they took him for what he was, actually the Savior. And they welcomed him. And I'd like to think that these Samaritans here in John 4, who believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, were among the ones in Acts chapter 8 who favorably received Philip's teaching Christ and preaching Christ, and many come into obedience to the Great Commission, baptism. So, this is where I uh, want to conclude our discussion uh, this morning. I'm not going to get into the remaining uh, section of chapter 4, uh, 43 through 54. I have some material that I'd like to uh, pass out. If I could have two guys to come forward. Let me pass these out. I think if everybody, every couple would take one, there might be enough to go around. Now, I have covered the remaining part of chapter 4 in this material, in the back of this material that I've given you. And that's taken uh, as an adaptation of the material from uh, Brother Mazzalongo from Bible Talk that we have been using from time to time in this study. But what I'd like to do is, uh, in the remaining moments, before the uh, wrong answer buzzer comes online... I want us to summarize the uh, implications or principles uh, from the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. So if you would, let, follow along with me. We won't just read word for word. Uh, but here I've in, emphasized at least nine principles uh, from Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman as applied to personal evangelism today. And I know we've had a lot on personal evangelism recently, but really, can we get enough or too much of that? Number one, uh, from verses 3 and 4, uh, this is where they, Jesus said that he needed or he had to go through Samaria instead of around the eastern side on the other side of the Jordan uh, that was the norm for Jews of that day because of their prejudice toward the Samaritans. Uh, it wasn't for Jesus, of course, but perhaps with his followers, the apostles, traveling with him, this might have uh, been something in their thinking, well, why aren't we going the usual route? Why are we having to go through uh, Samaria to get up there. 
and it was out of their comfort zone, perhaps. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about here. We say comfort zone, and that's where we're comfortable. There's, there's no challenge, there's, there's no push to do something that we uh, have a hard time doing or don't want to do. Our comfort zone. And it's easy to, to just set up camp permanently there where we're comfortable. No challenge. And uh, I'm not speaking anything against the comfort zone. That's the church, isn't it? <laughs> it should be the comfort zone. We are in the church of the Lord with all of the spiritual blessings that come. So I'm sure not knocking a spiritual comfort zone. But the saved are out there. I mean the lost are out there. For the most part. And if we just stay within the comfort zone of the congregation, and that's the limit of our sharing our faith, then uh, something's wrong. So sometimes, many times, it requires us to go ahead and push ourselves. We push ourselves in other areas over the holidays, gain too much weight. We push ourselves sometimes to lose that weight. We, we can push ourselves. Why not spiritually? Number two, from verse seven, we must take evangelism personally. Uh, it is the preacher's job. It is the elder's job. And they do it. And many others in the congregation uh, do this. But uh, at some point, all of us, uh, it, just in the ongoing course of life, we will have opportunities. And it needs to be personal. You and that person. Me and that person. Somehow, in whatever circumstances, it's a one-on-one -on -one dialogue with a person initiated either by us or by them. It's verbally sharing the gospel of that person. Yes, a lot of it is our example. But the gospel is spoken. It is spoken. Somebody who is lost needs to hear the gospel either from reading the scriptures themselves or by somebody verbally sharing their faith with them. It's being impartial toward that person. It's being non-judgmental. Still in verse 7, number 3, we must look for, recognize, and seize opportunities to share the gospel. For Jesus, it was a rest stop on a journey, but we've got to lift up our eyes and not let obvious opportunities slip away. And you can see there, it can be everyday opportunities in the neighborhood, work, school, store, hospital, trips, wherever. We must seize the moment before it passes. And then number four, uh, this is a tough one. We must transition from the non-spiritual to the spiritual in verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, give me a drink of physical water. If you, were to, if you knew who I was, who was speaking to you, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water, a transition from the physical to the spiritual. And the way that he did it was by using a central thought. For him, it was water. He took a physical subject of water and a person thirsting for water, 
and you turn it into a spiritual application. It's easy for us to get into a, a conversation with anybody uh, out here. We, we're in the South. We do that all the time. We're friendly folks. Much harder to somehow deliberately steer that into a spiritual discussion. And that's where so often we fail. I'm not going to go into this. Uh, not too long ago, I shared this approach uh, with the congregation here uh, in a door-knocking context. But uh, this is one suggestion of how one can transition from the physical to the spiritual in a door-knocking campaign. Uh, what we use, uh, we use the central thought of Christian care. We are Christians care for people. And you start off talking about the physical application of that, praying with people who have physical needs, and then you transition right into a spiritual application. Christians, we're not only caring for your physical needs, and if we can help in any way, but we also care for your spiritual condition. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to come right now, do you believe that you'd go to heaven with him? And you can see the usual responses that you get from that and how to go from there. But then we go on to number five principle. We must challenge the person with reference to authority, their sin, and Christ's salvation. From verses uh, 10 through 16, this is the conversation that Jesus has with the woman and in it, Jesus establishes authority up front by miraculously revealing the woman's past and present situation. He challenged her to acknowledge her sin. He also challenged her to believe that he was a savior. And I believe that's the pattern for us today. You have to start out with biblical authority. You need to be on the same page with a person that recognizing this is God's word. Uh, if at all possible. But then from that, you go into a discussion of sin and God's remedy for sin. Uh, I love the, uh, the workshop that we had here. In fact, uh, we're already using uh, these, these three booklets. The only thing that uh, I would change in that is the order. We use book number one on biblical authority but then we use number three on salvation. And then number two, the church. Because once a person recognizes the authority, and he recognizes he is in sin, he obeys the gospel, that puts him into the church. And then you study, study the church. It's just an opinion. But still, these three elements, I think, uh, belong in any discussion with a, a person. Uh, and then we must challenge a person to make a decision. Jesus plainly said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And later on in Acts 22, Ananias challenged Saul of Tarsus. Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And Paul did. He was challenged. What are you waiting for? You know the truth. You know how to obey the gospel. What are you waiting for? We need to challenge people. 
And then, number six, we must share the zeal that the Samaritan woman exhibited after her encounter with Jesus. And uh, this we've already talked about this morning as we finished up the verses that we were discussing. But uh, again, isn't it just something refreshing to see this woman? Uh, She became a soul winner. I tell you, again, getting back to this idea of the zeal that that we as Christians uh, should exhibit, should be natural in our uh, existence. We have actually been on uh, campaigns, door-knocking campaigns, and some of the ones that were led to obedience during the campaign, and this wasn't us pushing them into it, Some of them wanted to go out with us. We would go out in teams of three. And so some of the very converts that had only been Christians a day or two started to go out. They were silent partners in our approach, but they were a part of sharing the gospel with others. And uh, I think that's what the Samaritan woman did. She, she, She was brought to belief or faith. And immediately, she even forgot about her water pot. I don't know what she's going to do for supper that night without water, but that's not important. She had some good news to tell right then, and she did. Brethren, I appreciate your attention. I'll leave the rest of this for you to look at, especially the portion of the chapter that we did not get to in class. Uh, some good material here uh, that I've printed for you, and I encourage you to, to read through that.